In the name of the Father, the Son, and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. So, imagine. Um, it's a beautiful July afternoon at your favorite park. Or maybe you're out camping and you're looking out over a beautiful lake. Um, the sun is playing hide-and-seek behind some puffy summer clouds. A fresh, gentle breeze refreshes you. And as you look over this beautiful vista, somehow it just feels like everything is put in perspective. You have a sense of how precious this all is and how small and how fragile you really are. And it comes into your mind, this might be a time for a prayer. But what do you say? <laughs> or um, you're wandering around one of these beautiful Gothic cathedrals, either here in our country or maybe you're on a European tour. And there's this beautiful stained glass. And uh, there are tourists who are lighting candles and crossing themselves and, and snapping photos. And you meander down to one of the little side chapels all by yourself. And you sit there and it just feels like this would be a time to pray. But what do you pray? The Lord's Prayer? Uh, or something that you pick up in the prayer book stuffed into that little pew rack? You bow your head, but nothing comes. Or, it's the morning of surgery. Your spouse is already sedated and almost ready to leave the room. There's the holding of hands. There's the muttering about the traffic on the way to the hospital and um, the weather and all of the small talk that makes up pre-op. Finally, Finally, the gurney arrives. They slide her onto the bed, onto the, from the bed onto the gurney. You give her a kiss as they roll her out of the room. And here you are in this quiet, empty room. Her bed unmade and vacant. What do you do at a time like this? I mean, it seems like you ought to pray, but what? Where is that pamphlet that the hospital chaplain left the other day? The truth is there isn't a person here who didn't or doesn't have to learn how to pray. It's not something that comes naturally. We teach our children, now I lay me down to sleep. But the reality is, for many of us, we never get any more sophisticated in our prayer life than what we taught them. We might as well be talking to a post as to God. It's so silent at the other end. It doesn't feel like much of a conversation, more like a soliloquy. Only practice seems to open up the flow in both directions until eventually the silence is no longer mistaken for being empty, but full. Of course, we're not the first to have trouble with 
praying, it is hardly distinctive to our overly scheduled, information-laden lives. It was as troubling to Jesus' disciples. So we may be surprised in the gospel, I can't even see Steve over there, the, the, the gospel that Steve just read to us, to hear, they, to, to hear them say to Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray. And so Jesus begins these, with these words, most of them familiar to us from the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer, um, except this is one of the places where Catholics are actually more scriptural than Protestants. You'll notice there's no mention of the little doxology that we put at the end of the Lord's Prayer. And he seems to be most intent on teaching um, not how to pray or the proper techniques or words, but their proper relationship in prayer. They, we need to know not just how to pray, we need to know to whom we pray. And so we get this puzzling parable following the words of the Our Father. Because apparently some of us still worry that God may awaken at the sound of our voice like some mother bear coming out of her cave, angry at being disturbed. On the other hand, some of us are so out of practice with prayer, it feels like a lost art. It's like recovering high school French when you're standing on a street corner in Montreal or Paris and you really need that right word. Some of us are barely on speaking terms with God ever since that time when we prayed so earnestly for something to happen or not to happen and it didn't work out the way we had hoped. And some of us, frankly, have never prayed. Just so awkward, the whole thing. To what kind of God do we pray? Jesus answers that with this story about a cranky neighbor. And I have to confess to you that for many years, I struggled with this story. It seems like it is so inconsistent with everything else that I have ever learned about God. It was only after wrestling with it. Um, I suppose like Jacob wrestled with that angel at the River Jabbok, you remember? Only after wrestling with it, that I came to some way of understanding it that made sense to me. Now, I am confident that the first people who heard Jesus say these words could identify completely with the situation because it comes right out of first century Palestinian life. Jesus says, imagine yourself asleep one night and there is a knock at your door and it turns out to be a relative of yours who lives a long way away, who unexpectedly shows up needing a place to stay for the night. Now, that kind of thing easily happened. Realize that in those days, first of all, tr people traveled by foot. There are no Holiday Inns or Best Westerns. There is no cell phone that announces that you are just about an hour away, so if you could just warm up the leftovers... Also realize that um, poor people in particular in those days had to rely on the hospitality of those who they were going to travel towards. Um, 
They actually have to line this up in advance. That's the only way that they get from one place to the other. So the average person planning a trip says, now I have to make sure that I get to Aunt Rachel's house by this night, and then I'll have to be at Uncle Laban's house by the next night, and so on all the way along. It was also one of the canons of that day that you never sent a guest, a guest to bed um, hungry, having walked so much in the heat of the day. So Jesus says, you find yourself with this unexpected guest right in the middle of the night, and you go to the cupboard, and it is bare. Remember, there are no refrigerators, no freezers, so people's food preparations are really one day at a time. Well, rather than be embarrassed or send your um, new guest to bed hungry, you decide to go next door and you knock at your neighbor's house and you explain, please, could you loan me just a few loaves? And the way the voice initially reacts at the door is, again, vintage first-century Palestinian life. The voice says, can't you see that the door is closed? Don't bother me. My children are already asleep. Now, to understand that, you need to remember the average house in those days was just a one-room shanty. We're talking four walls and a roof. There are no windows, just one large door which is only opened in the morning. Everything was done outside, the cooking, the working, the playing, all of that. The only thing that you did inside was to sleep at night. So what would happen typically was that as the sun was going down, usually the father gathers up his tools, he hangs them on the pegs on the inside of the shanty, then he brings the animals in. They line the outside of this room. And finally, the children would come in. He would bank the stove. He would put a bushel over the lamp to keep it from going out. And then he would have the children lie down closest to the stove on the dirt floor. And the very last thing that happened, the very last thing, is that the door is closed. And so now it is completely dark inside. Now, it was a cardinal principle in those days that when you saw the door closed, you knew this process. It was like a big do not disturb sign that was hung right outside. So when Jesus describes this scene, it is perfectly predictable with the lifestyle of that day. Let me just pause here and say that I can really empathize with that neighbor next door. Can't you? I mean, I know that life has changed dramatically since those days. But it seems to me that one of the things that probably hasn't changed is little children's propensity to prolong the going to bed sequence. Um, at least with our kids, it was amazing how many things we had forgotten or projects that needed to be completed. As soon as those magic words were said, it's time for bed. <laughs> I had a minister friend who said that his son had this uncanny ability. Once the face was washed and the teeth were brushed and the father was hoarse from having told yet another bedtime story, um, the son would get this earnest look on his face and say, Daddy, 
tell me about Jesus. <laughs> I mean, and really, what is a father minister supposed to do with that golden opportunity for religious education? Well, given that pattern, the 11th commandment in many a household is never wake a sleeping child. So I have real empathy for this neighbor. But Jesus says, you are so persistent. You simply will not take no for an answer. So you keep on knocking until finally the children are awakened. The animals are all now stirring. And your neighbor, not because he cares about you, not because he really wants to help you. He gets up, he takes the bushel off of the lamp, he goes to the cupboard and he sticks these three loaves of bread in your chest with a look on his face that would kill. And you return to your home happy because you have left your neighbor's life in shambles. <laughs> so this is the story that Jesus tells when the disciples say, could you teach us how to pray? <laughs> and the reason I puzzled, you see, is because the implication here seems to be that prayer is just stubbornly insisting on your own way and refusing to take no for an answer until finally you just wear God out. And God, not because God cares about you or wants to help you, but just to get you out of his hair, God will give you what you want. And that whole image of God as a cranky neighbor just seemed to fly in the face of so much that Jesus taught and even the example of his own relationship with God. You remember the last night of his life in Gethsemane, he bows and he says, Father, um, take this cup from me. I mean, that's what he really wanted. But having said that, he goes on to say, not my will, but yours be done. In other words, he didn't continue to knock and knock and knock. He said what he wanted or needed, and then he entrusted the situation to God. So you can see why our story today seemed to be just the antithesis of how Jesus himself approached God. And then one day, this noted biblical scholar pointed out this little linguistic detail in the story that I had never thought of. Um, it's amazing how great doors of truth can, can turn on very slender hinges. So he said that in Koine Greek, which is the language of the New Testament, there is a little conjunction, kai, K-A-I. And it can be translated either as and or as but. Either way will work. It's all about the context and the flow of the sentence. Well, if you translate it as and, that means that there's some continuity between one side and the other side of the conjunction. However, if you translate it as but, that signals a real change in the direction of the thought. Somebody says to you, I don't want to bother you, but. I don't want to be picky, but you know what is coming after that but. So this scholar said he thought what Jesus was doing is he was taking that image of the cranky neighbor and saying, but I say to you, ask and you will receive. Seek, 
you will find. Knock, the door will be opened. In other words, Jesus is contrasting the God he came into the world to reveal with the kind that pagans had always believed and feared throughout the centuries. Look, if you know anything about pagan theology, you know that the operating principle was that the gods in the heavens were at best indifferent to what went on on the earth. I mean, that's where the whole notion of sacrifice came, right? The idea here is that the sacrifice is offered to appease or maybe even to bribe gods so that the gods will care and maybe help us. Do you remember the myth of Prometheus? This is from back in your school days. Prometheus was one of the lesser gods on Mount Olympus. And uh, one day, in a way that was totally out of character with the way of gods at that time, he had compassion on these human beings who he saw stumbling around in the dark and freezing in the cold. And so he went and he took some fire from the altar at Mount Olympus and he gave it to the earthlings to enlighten them and to warm them. But when Zeus, the great one, heard about this, he was furious. And so Prometheus was banished to a rock in the middle of a river with vultures gnawing away at him because in pagan mythology, the gods were at best indifferent to our lives. So Jesus is saying, if you could just begin to understand this great mystery that lies behind everything, you would see that God is not like that pagan portrayal of God. God is not like a cranky neighbor who is hard to awaken and grumbling at being disturbed. Rather, God understands, whether it be the most eloquent of prayers written by a poet's pen or the most bumbling of prayers offered by the voice of one who is completely out of practice. Prayer is not pressing reluctance. It is opening yourself. It is sharing yourself with one who knows you better and who loves you more deeply than you will ever know. And yet, having said that, I have to confess that in the deepest parts of my being, I still have remnants of that pagan lie. Deep down in many of our psyches is that old lie that you remember the serpent whispered to Adam and Eve that God is not really good, that God cannot really be trusted. One of the most oft-quoted passages from C.S. Lewis's writings is a story about a little boy who was asked one day, what do you think God is really like? And the schoolboy got this um, solemn look on his face, and he said, I think God is like the great killjoy. He walks around with a frown on his face, like the principal at my school, and if he finds anybody having a good time, he puts an end to it as quickly as he can. In all honesty, is that negative image of God so far from the way you were taught? Does the idea of surrendering your life to God make you just leap for joy? Or is there also a part of you that cringes at the thought that 
you might be asked to give up something that you really treasure or asked to do something that you would rather not do or hang out with people that you would never want to be around. Maybe the most important thing Jesus ever did was to change our understanding of the nature of God. This is why we call it good news. And if that truth ever gets to the bottom of your being, then the importance, the imperative that you find more often in Scripture than any other can become your way of doing business. No less than 450 times in the Bible, it says to us, be not afraid. And the secret to living that way is knowing that the one who gave you life, the one who is walking beside you today, the one who is going before you tomorrow, has your highest good in mind. It is God's very nature to bless. That being the case, I don't have to go to God's door and beat down God's reluctance. I go rather to the one who wants to bless me more than I know what blessing is. To the mystery of God, Jesus gave a face. On that face, he put a smile. You can trust that kind of God.